Uh, I've, uh, I've been a pastor, a uh, teacher, and a missionary uh, for uh, roughly half a century. Uh, my specialty is Old Testament language and exegesis. Uh, I'm married to the piano player. Uh, and, uh, 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 happily, all of, all of those 50 years, we're up, at, up to, uh, what year is it anyway? We're, we celebrated 51 or 52, I've forgotten what I should know, but I, uh, I'm, I'm also the father-in-law of the piano player who wasn't here today. And that's uh, my daughter is uh, Kathy, and uh, Nathan and Rachel are downstairs now. Those are our grandkids. We've got all kinds of connections. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that's who I am. So I'm, I'm John McMahon. Uh, and I approve of this message. Uh, <laughs> let's see if I can make this come up. HDMI 1. Plug in, plug in. Maybe it wants to come back to it. Maybe it wants to unplug it. You know, I love it when stuff like this works. Um, <laughs> And it's not, it, <laughs> is it up? Well, how about that? Absolutely astounding. Let's see if I can, okay, make, uh, okay, that needs to go away. Okay, that says Deuteronomy. Um, most, uh, uh, most pastors uh, don't get around to the book of Deuteronomy. It's like uh, I, oh, we did a survey here a while back, and it turns out that about 2% of congregations in the United States have ever heard uh, a series through Deuteronomy. Uh, and, uh, you know, that makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, Deuteronomy is a big book. It's a difficult book. Uh, it's in a place in the Old Testament uh, where a lot of people never get uh, uh, when I do Old Testament survey, I've taught Old Testament survey about a hundred times, uh, and when, uh, when I start out in the Old Testament, I'm gangbusters in Genesis, and I spend about, oh, three, maybe three and a half weeks on Genesis. Exodus, I just love the first uh, 12 or 13 chapters, and I just roar through uh, that part of Exodus, and then by the time I get to Leviticus, I'm making up for lost time. Uh, and you know we do the sacrifices, and we do a couple of feast days, and we pick off a law or two here and there, and I'm on to numbers, and I never spend more than a week and a half on numbers, and by that time, I look at my schedule, and I discover that I'm a month behind, and it's time for Deuteronomy. And I spend 20 minutes doing Deuteronomy so I can line up for, judge, uh, for Joshua Judges, where I'm gonna spend another couple. And it's just awful. Uh, and uh, so about a year ago, I decided, you know, I haven't spent enough time with Deuteronomy. I'm going to take a good look at this book. Deuteronomy is Moses' last messages to the people of Israel before they went into the Promised Land. Uh, and Deuteronomy comes at the end of a sequence. Uh, so Genesis represents 
uh, everything that happened before Moses. Genesis is the setup of the creation, the fall, the flood, all of the, uh, all of the pre-history, pre-Abrahamic stuff. And then from 12 to 50, we've got the, uh, the nation of Israel introduced, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in particular, down into Egypt. And then nothing happens for a long, long time. Then Exodus, wow, here comes Moses. And Moses uh, is chosen by God to be the messenger from God with miraculous attestation. The point of the miracle is to authenticate God's messenger with God's message. Uh, and so Moses was sent into the, into the scheme of things to bring God's inaugural message to the people of Israel. Uh, and the, uh, the Exodus is a great story, and you've got all the plagues, and you've got the magicians, and you've got all the, you know, the blood and the gnats and all. You know, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and we finally come to the end of that, and the Passover happens. And the blood of the Passover lamb splashed on the doorposts. The heads of the families who did that were acting in faith. Those who, those who were saved the night of the Passover of the death angel were saved people. Those, those were, that, that is the essence of redemption there. And at that point for this people of Israel, the journey begins. And out of, uh, out of the Nile Valley, they went out of the land of Goshen, away from the Wadi Tumalat and all that they had, uh, they had recollected there. Off they went toward, toward the Suez Canal, which wasn't there and past all the security barriers that weren't there, and a, and, a, and a great Egyptian line of forts. And they found a way through that, and I'm not going to take a position on the location of the Red Sea right now, or the Sea of Reeds. It doesn't matter a whole lot, uh, and uh, scholars at a higher pay grade than me have been arguing about this for about 3,000 years, so I'm not going to settle it. But they crossed a body of water miraculously. Okay, and the water stood up this way, when the water stood up that way, they went down and came back up the other side, leaving their old life behind on the shores of Egypt and beginning a new life on the shores of Sinai. That was their baptism into Moses. Baptism came after their redemption. And that's a very important concept. It's a biblical concept, and this is just one of a whole bunch of places where we see that that's the pattern. Uh, and so up they come, and they're on the other side, and what they have done now is begun a new life. Now, what is Moses going to do with this people? They've, they've been brought out. They've been brought out. And where are we going to go now? Well, long, long time ago, God promised to our fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that, uh, that he would bring them back to this 
land. And in this land they will live forever and this will be the place of blessing or curse. You kind of get to take the choice. And so Moses said, I've, I've brought you out, but God is going to bring you in. And we'll see how that works. And they went from there to Mount Sinai. Now, again, I'm not going to argue uh, about the location of Mount Sinai. Um, yeah, my opinion is that it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, there are uh, several traditional locations. <laughs> Don't you hate that? Uh, the, uh, the traditional location that is most convenient is a place called Jebel Musa in the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, if, you, if, you come out of, uh, if you come from Cairo, uh, you'll cross the Suez Canal uh, through a tunnel, and you'll drive up the, uh, well, actually, you drive down the coast of uh, Sinai. You take a right turn, head south along the Sinai Peninsula, and then up into the granite central hill country, the massif of southern Sinai. And at the peak of that, there are three peaks. And the, uh, the one at the foot of which lies a Greek Orthodox uh, monastery called St. Catherine's uh, is the one that is the traditional site of uh, uh, Mount Sinai that we really don't know. Uh, to me, it looks like the right general area, and it's got a lot of stuff that I really like. Uh, and it also has a monastery at the base with a guest house uh, where you can take a group of... Uh, pilgrims, <laughs> which is kind of what we were, so that you can climb the mountain in the middle of the night to be there for sunrise. Yeah, it can be done. And uh, most of the other candidates don't have an infrastructure like that, which is why I like that particular mountain. You'll notice there is absolutely no scholarly reasoning in that. It could be the right place but there's an excellent chance that someplace else is the right place. It doesn't make any difference. God took Moses up onto Mount Sinai, at which point uh, he spoke to Moses as a man speaks with his friend. And God revealed, among other things, what we call the law. Now, I call it uh, Torah, the Hebrew word Torah um, is the classical way of pronouncing it. Lots of students coming through Hebrew courses today say Torah, which is correct in modern Hebrew. And I don't criticize anybody who says Torah. And that's probably what you've heard. Uh, from my way of hearing, Torah is what the Japanese pilots said on their way, and uh, you know, they said Torah, 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 and, uh, and climb Mount Shiitake or whatever it was. Um, Torah, we normally translate law, but that's our really, really bad translation. When I think of law, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, 18 section three of the federal whatever having to do with regulations for fixed based operators and you know, I, that's law. Uh, and for the most part, modern law is really dull. 
which is why we have to pay lawyers so much. Biblical law is different. Biblical law is different. A lot of modern law is uh, arbitrary. It could be any of several ways. And the legislature or some regulatory agency has decided that it's going to be this way, no matter what the cost and no matter what anybody thinks, this is the way it's going to be. Uh, biblical law is a different duck altogether. From God on Mount Sinai, Moses received the law to pass on to the people of Israel. And we've got to ask ourselves a question. Well, what for? There were already laws. Uh, we know that there were laws put together by Babylonian characters like Lipid Ishtar. Uh, Hammurabi is famous. We've actually got a copy of his law code in the Louvre in Paris. Uh, there's a lot of stuff and there's a lot of similarities. So why did God give Moses this new take? Well, there's several things that are really unusual about biblical law. The first is that biblical law is built on a, a pattern of first principles. I know, too much philosophy. By that I mean there are a set of universal principles that are laid down first. We call these the Ten Commandments. What I'm going to do today is give you an introduction to the Ten Commandments, and I'm hoping to get as far as the first commandment. Now people say, how can pastors preach for months and months on half a verse? Well, I'm going to show you this morning. <laughs> that's, 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 how it, uh, that's how it actually works. Uh, the, I, I may have another chance uh, later on to do the second in this series. I don't know, we'll, we'll see how that, uh, that all works out. Okay, so Deuteronomy, is 40 years after the Sinai experience, after the wilderness wanderings, after the rebellion at Kadesh, after all of the mm, adventures, after the Balaam narrative, after all of the stuff that's going on in the book of Numbers. And here we are in the plains of Moab, and this is a view of the, uh, the delightfully scenic location where Moses probably gave the sermon or the series of sermons that we're going to see in the book of Deuteronomy. Doesn't that look like a homey, happy, comfortable place? The temperature of the day I took this was probably around 118 degrees in the shade. Uh, I, I had been looking for shade for a while when I took this picture. <laughs> it wasn't shady there. Uh, this is actually in Jordan, modern, uh, modern state of Jordan, about halfway down uh, the Dead Sea, close to uh, the area that we call the Plains of Moab, uh, but it's, uh, it's also called the Wadi Rum and some other, so there we, there we are. And Moses explained to the people of Israel what was going on. Let me, let me read this introduction to the Ten Commandments. 
I don't say first command, but I say the introduction to the Ten Commandments. It includes verse 6, which is, is the introduction, and verse 7, which is the first commandment. Well, let's just take a look at this. And, and I'm going to read this uh, and uh, think through what's going on here uh, while, while we read. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Full stop. New graph. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay. We're going to think about this. Uh, because frankly, there's so much in this passage that unpacking it is going to take a little while. Uh, Pastor Stephen has given us an illustration many times as we work our way through the book of Galatians about the errors that people generally make concerning the law. On one side is legalism. On the other side is apathy. And there's a right path in the middle. And Pastor Stephen has been calling that faithfulness. We're going to talk a little bit about legalism, about apathy, and particularly about faithfulness. The Ten Commandments are not meant to be negative. They're meant to be a positive exposition of the character and attributes of God himself. And they come with a promise that I really like. The Ten Commandments are not meant as a negative. The Ten Commandments are not meant as a checklist. Uh, you know, okay, how, how's my day going? Well, let's see, I, I, I haven't murdered anybody, uh, I have, haven't lied in any big ways, have hardly coveted anything except maybe that new Springfield, but no. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, how uh, you, you talk to people sometimes and say, well, you know, you ever think about, well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Do you now? Do you now? The Ten Commandments are meant as, a, as an unreachable ideal, an expression of the infinite perfection of God himself with the promise that in a faithful, believing life, we will learn to increasingly reflect the character of God himself in our lives. Back over in, um, well, I'm going, I'm going everywhere at once, let, let's, so let, let's just go where we're going. Uh, the, um, the point of a confrontation with God, by the way, this, this photograph was taken at dawn on Mount Sinai. Uh, you can visualize Moses up on he could be on that mountain for all we know, but, but you know, he's the point of a confrontation with God, when we're face to face with God, 
the living God has come down on this mountain and he is, uh, you can hear the thunder, you can see the fire, the lightning is going everywhere, the smoke is rising like a furnace and Moses is in the midst of that. A great modern philosopher, uh, Christian philosopher, Alban Plantinga says that it is perfectly reasonable for a person confronted by the living God to believe that God is and that he is currently speaking. It's perfectly reasonable. Uh, the Bible doesn't offer us proof for the existence of God. It simply confronts us with the living God and allows him to speak for himself. That's, that's what it's about. And when we're confronted with a living God, it is perfectly reasonable to respond with a life of faithfulness. And I don't need any proof. Now, I do, in fact, have a lot of proof. I've got all kinds of proof. Yeah, look, at the, uh, look at the universe. The universe exists. It might not exist. You know, look at each individual part and ask yourself, is this thing absolutely necessary? You know, uh, here's, here's, a, uh, here's a remote. Hmm? Does it exist? Well, yes, of course it exists. I mean, you can see it, unless you want to be a complete nihilist and deny the existence of everything in anybody. You know. Some people are stupid. Uh, I, I referenced the past week's election. Um, <laughs> And you can take that either direction. You want to, uh, this thing exists. I can see it. You can see it. We all can. But there was a time when it didn't exist. I see that it was, uh, uh, it was made in China, uh, probably a factory in China, uh, being operated by a whole bunch of people making almost nothing. But they made it. And there was a time when it didn't exist. And there will come a time when it has outlived its usefulness and become obsolete and will join that great landfill in the sky. It's a temporary thing. It's a contingent thing. It was made by someone a whole lot smarter than it is. It was designed by somebody and then manufactured by somebody and then put in a box by somebody and shipped over here for us to use today. We don't believe that that particular remote is some kind of eternal being. And we can go through everything that exists and we can say to ourselves, well, how did that come into being? And we can get an answer for everything. Except the one. There is one who could not have been created. Deuteronomy 1.6 and the verses that follow. Having been confronted with the living God, having just experienced the most astounding event in the history of the world, the people of Israel were told, Moses says, that God appeared to us there on the mountain and he said to the people of Israel, you've been long enough on this mountain. Anybody ever done any mountain topping? 
but I, I like climbing mountains. Uh, and uh, I uh, haven't done that in many, many years uh, for reasons that would become obvious to you if you were around me for a bit. Uh, but I have climbed my share of mountains. Many years ago, I, I went up a mountain, and it doesn't sound very impressive. It's called Mount Maud in the uh, uh, Washington Cascades. It's one of the 9,000-foot peaks in the Cascades. And uh, when we're teaching beginners about the rudiments of climbing mountains, Mount Maud is a nice one to, to begin with. Uh, and I had a 12-year-old boy that I was trying to introduce to the, the wonders of climbing mountains. Uh, and we were all decked out, and, and we, had, uh, we had good boots, and we had ice axes, and I had a rope, and we had all of the, you know, all the carabiners, all the junk. Uh, and um, uh, we walked all the way in the first day, parked at the bottom, walked about, it was about an eight-mile walk to get into what I had picked as a base camp. And this was a scree slope with a creek running through it. Very uncomfortable place, but it was close to the bottom of the glacier. Uh, so we camped there, uh, and I spent the evening uh, cooking a dinner over a, uh, a, a little white gas stove uh, and listening to this 12-year-old complain about the food. I even got freeze-dried hamburger patties. Uh, he complained about everything because there was no ketchup to go on. <laughs> you know, there are times when you just want to... You know. The next morning, we got up early. It was really cold. And we got all our gear on, and we headed up the, headed up the glacier. Long traverse up to a call, a, a, a kind of a saddle. And you take a right turn on that saddle, and there's a bit of rock on the other side where you can walk. And from there, it is possible to get all the way to the summit. So we were about two-thirds of the way to the summit, using this uh, 300-foot rope and taking turns. And up we went, up, up this ridge line. And I noticed off to my left, toward the west, toward Seattle, uh, where uh, so often uh, trouble comes from, uh, the dark clouds, just black clouds, kind of. Now, it was, uh, it was the beginning of summer. Uh, so I knew that those clouds were, were coming my way and that they probably contained rain, maybe snow and hail, and very likely a thunderstorm. And so I looked at this kid who was just, you know, t as only 12-year-olds can be tired, and he was just, and I looked at the location of the summit. Oh, a thousand yards or so, not... Not an impossible distance, unless you're trying to shepherd, you know. <laughs> and so we turned around and we came back out. And indeed, the thunder came, and the lightning came, and the rain came, and so did the hail, and it turned into snow. Uh, and uh, we packed all the way off of that mountain like the retreat from Moscow. Uh, it just was trudge, trudge, trudge. Got back in the car and drove all the way home that same night. Um, let's say it was a tough trip. What did we learn on top of that mountain? How long were we there, close to the summit of that piddly little mountain? Not long, several minutes. 
to enjoy this magnificent view. Well, the thing about mountaintops is that you can't stay there. The thing about mountaintops is that you should enjoy the experience and learn everything you can about that. The people of Israel were experiencing a mountaintop. Moses himself was really on the mountain, and he was in direct confrontation with God. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to do for the whole rest of your life? But of course, you can't do that. You've been on this mountain long enough. Well, what could be better? What could be more interesting? What could what else could go wrong? And the point of the mountaintop was to prepare Israel for thousands of years of faithful living. It was to prepare a nation to serve God faithfully. And that's the whole point. The point of the confrontation is a long, faithful life. Faithfulness is a, a, an interesting thing to define. And I've spent a good part of my career trying to define the term. Faith by itself uh, is the size of a mustard seed. It's a point on a line. If I exercise faith right now, that's an attitude of trust built on what I know about the word of God that results in active obedience to God right now. Saving faith takes faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. Right now, I trust Christ on the basis of the three verses that I've just heard, and I'm going to raise my hand in church and walk forward. Nothing to it. It takes an instant. And Jesus said, you've got faith like that? You can move mountains if you need to. Or you can treat that as what it is, a mountaintop experience, where you've learned just a little, but it's life-transforming. If you take that mustard seed and multiply it by time, it turns into faithfulness. So there's a big difference between faith and faithfulness. Faith is a point Faithfulness is a line. You've been long enough on this mountain, the end of that passage about verse 9, behold, I've set the land before you. I brought you out in order that I might bring you in. The point of your salvation coming up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, is so that I could bring you into the land of promise where you can begin to live faithfully by the principles that I've shown you. There, that's kind of a neat point. Uh, so the faithfulness of following God isn't a checklist of rules to make sure that I haven't messed up. It is not a way of salvation. It is a way of life for saved people. Always. 
And the poor folks that I talk to who say, oh, well, I, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm saved. I've always tried to keep the Ten Commandments are certainly lost. Because if you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments without the lawgiver living in you, you're still in your sin. It's as simple as that. And the people who are desperately trying to keep the Ten Commandments will always fail. Read Matthew. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Well, I tell you, if you call your brother a fool in your heart, you've murdered him already. I can barely drive to work in the morning without violating that one. How good do I have to be? Well, let's see. God is infinitely perfect. Romans. For all have sinned, that is, they have fallen short of the glory of God. Let's think about this for a bit. On that mountain, the people confronted the glory of God. I got to define glory for just a moment. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of the invisible character and attributes of God. Glory is always something visible. It's really important to understand. Uh, uh, that concept is a key that unlocks big chunks of the Bible. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of the invisible character and attributes of God. These lights on the ceiling glorify the electricity. We know that there's electricity in the wall, but you can't see it. And we know that it comes from wherever, Cooley Dam or wherever this electricity is coming from, but you can't see it. The light bulbs make the electricity visible. I can tell there's electricity in the wall by throwing the switch and watching the lights come on. How can you tell? How can you tell that an individual is indwelt by the Spirit of God? How can you tell that God lives in somebody? <laughs> by the glory. There ought to be a visible manifestation of the invisible character and attributes of God that lives in me. If I look at you or you look at me and you can't see God, there's something wrong. That makes sense? Now, it's possible for a light bulb to go kind of dim, but it's still there as long as it's alive. Yes. All kinds of stuff happens in the real world and the illustrations break down, but the glory of God is meant to be living in us and visible through us. On the mountaintop, the people confronted the glory of God. This is the visible manifestation of his invisible characters, and the purpose of the faithful life is to glorify God. Paul, over in the... Uh, Second Corinthian epistle is trying to solve an argument. People were saying, well, what about meat sacrifice to idols and days when you take the time off? Uh, and Paul answers, whatever. 
It really does. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, in other words, whatever. It, I, 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 frankly, my dear, I couldn't possibly care less. Eat, drink, what, you know, do whatever, but do it all to the glory of God. The purpose of a faithful life is to glorify God. That is to make the invisible God visible in our lives. The Ten Commandments are designed to produce that kind of faithfulness. Let's think about it a little more. Start right off at the beginning. I am the Lord your God. You know how long I could lecture about this? I'm not going to. But I want you to think about this for a second. The first thing that we need to know about God is that he is. Not he was or he shall be, but he is. God says, I am. I imagine you can think of some other biblical characters who said, I am, famously. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the eternal God. Okay. <laughs> John Paul Sartre. I'll just give this quote because it's kind of fun. Nothing comes from nothing. One of the biggest problems in philosophy is deciding where everything started. If you didn't have to bother with that, all kinds of possibilities would come up. And Sartre, famous existentialist, hated the church with a passion. He says, the biggest problem that we've got here is that nothing comes from nothing. And here we've got stuff that we either have to deny that our lying eyes are seeing, or we have to explain how it all exists rather than not existing. Why is there something rather than nothing at all? It's actually a pretty good question. Francis Schaeffer answers the question, he is there. He is. And he follows that up with, and he is not silent. One of the most famous books he wrote at the beginning of the the initial apologetics trilogy. Uh, he's there, and we need to believe that. Uh, Exodus 3 introduces the name of God to Moses, and we all remember that passage. Moses went over, and the bush was burning, and he didn't understand it. He went over, and a voice came out of the bush saying, take your sandals off your on holy ground. Well, who are you? I am that I am. Echya esher echya, for those of you who are speaking in tongues this morning. As a Hebrew phrase, uh, that means uh, I, I am because I am. Another way of saying that is you are speaking to the one who cannot not be. I necessarily exist. Here I am. There can be only one. I am he. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the Lord. Lord is the name Yahweh. Uh, and uh, that's probably the correct pronunciation. 
Um, most uh, modern scholars say very likely there's there's a stop at the H and you start a second syllable. Uh, some would prefer a Yahweh, which would come out Jehovah. Um, I think that's incorrect for technical reasons and it doesn't matter. Yahweh is a good tr uh, transliteration of the name of God, the Tetragrammaton. Uh, Yahweh is a form of the verb to be, I am. We would tra translate it better perhaps, he who is. I am the Lord, your God. Now the word God is a generic term. God is not a name for God, it's a description. Uh, God means the supreme being. See if I've got something else. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Somewhere along here, can you tell that I got uh, uh, the the call to do this sermon on Thursday? Okay, just so so we're all clear. <laughs> I've got a pyramid in one of these slides. I want us to think about a pyramid uh, because the, the importance of the term God is the idea of a supreme being. If you're piling up a pyramid, uh, there's, there's some technology involved in pyramid building, so uh, I'm, I'm going to make light of it. So those of you who actually understand engineering, uh, don't criticize me. I, I do know uh, what they learned at Saqqara. I, I, I get it. But you're piling up a pyramid, you start with the bottom, and there's a whole bunch of rocks in the bottom. They're not as big as you think they are, they're so big, they're, they're not impossible to move. You move some here and here and here and here, and you, then you do a second layer, a little bit higher, a little bit smaller, and you do a third layer, and you a little bit higher, a little bit smaller, until finally, you get as far as you can go, and it's got this itsy bitsy, just a teeny little bit, and it's just over there. one last thing, and you reach way up, and you clunk the last stone all the way at the top. You can't put any more on top, because there isn't room for more than one at the top of a pyramid. When we think about the order of beings, there are lots of things that exist. This chair exists, this microphone exists, Don over here exists. Uh, uh, all of these things are fairly low on the pyramid. Okay, well, the possible exception of Don, he's a little farther up. <laughs> all of this stuff is, you know, part of it. And I know that I'm not God. I know that Don isn't God. I'm really certain that this microphone is not God. Well, how do I know that? Well, because I'm not at the top of the pyramid. You get to the top of the top of the heap, and we're we're going to be uh, looking at uh, what Anselm calls that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Okay, the eighth century monk in, uh, it wasn't at Oxford, he was, a, yeah, he was at Oxford before it was really a big university. And that's the beginning of what we call the ontological argument for the existence of God. And it's an unshakable argument because if we start with the definition of God, 
God is the greatest of all possible beings. And if you can imagine a being who is the greatest of all possible beings, but he doesn't exist, then you can also imagine the greatest of all possible beings who does include the attribute of existence. So obviously, an existing God is a greater being than one who doesn't exist. It's actually a good argument, believe it or not. And uh, we never use it for evangelism because people get lost in that kind of a thing. It's just, it just the, the, the way it is. It says, I am the Lord your God. He is the God who exists. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God necessarily is. He also necessarily acts. God couldn't sit in his lonely heaven throughout all of eternity forever without acting. And so the creation, the acts of redemption, the providence of God in producing the natural world, all of this is necessary. God did this. God is not ever going to be silent. Uh, deism, which uh, died a natural death about 200 years ago, uh, is the religious idea that God created the heavens and the earth and put down all of the natural laws and then walked away and hasn't paid attention since then. And that is, again, philosophically necessarily wrong. How could a God who is great enough to do the miracle of creation not continue to be inflected? So he acts. Egypt was the land of slavery, but it's the symbol. Egypt is a symbol for us and for every believer of every age of sin. In the New Testament, Paul says, you were slaves to sin, but for freedom Christ has set you free. God set Israel free from slavery in Egypt in order that they might be free people living independently in their own land under the blessings of God with the opportunity to make him visible in the world. Israel was brought out so they could be brought in. And the whole point of salvation is a long, faithful life that makes God visible in the world. The pattern we see in the, uh, uh, the act of salvation itself, the, the mighty acts of God, uh, the Latin term for that is the Magnalia Dei, we find in the Latin Vulgate, and scholars like to uh, speak about the mighty acts of God as though these were mythic great acts, that, but they actually happened. We can demonstrate the history behind all of them. God actually acts in history. The act of salvation is climaxed in the resurrection of Christ himself. And I can demonstrate the resurrection for you uh, in, in the sense of a, of a logical argument. I can show you the evidence. I can show you what all that we know. The resurrection clearly and obviously happened. The existence of the church is the greatest evidence. Here we are, meeting on Sunday mornings, 
to do what? To celebrate the resurrection just as the first church did. Because eyewitnesses on Sunday morning said, he's risen, he's not there. Come see the place. And here we are. The act of beginning a new life, what Israel was doing there in the, in the Sinai, leads to blessing. And that blessing comes in the form of obedience to basic truths. That's what the Ten Commandments is. So we're introduced to ten basic principles that underline all of the rest of the law. Now, here's a, here's a, a, a principle. This is, this is something I learned the hard way, as Pastor Stephen likes to say, you can have it for free. The Ten Commandments are the basics. The, that's the ten principles. And they're not simple. The Ten Commandments are meant to express universal truths about the character of God. They're meant to be expressed positively. We always express them negatively. You know, thou shalt not. And don't, don't do this and quit doing that. And if it was too much fun, don't ever do it again. And that kind of, and, and we think that we're, we're, we're uh, understanding the law. The law is actually meant to be positive. Years ago, our house burned. This is uh, 1986, our house burned down. A long time ago in a galaxy far away and the house burned down. And uh, our church put us up in the little missionary house for a few weeks while we kind of figured out what to, what to do. And then a family in the church let us have their lake place at Newman Lake for the rest of the winter. And it was winter and we were young and the kids were young and uh, so we took up ice skating. Uh, and ice skating is really fun because on a, on a nice day when there's no snow on the lake, which it, it was for most of January, no snow on the lake, it's clear. Oh, it's beautiful. You can skate anywhere. <laughs> you skate anywhere. It's really fun. Uh, but Newman Lake has a, a unique thing. Uh, there are springs underneath the lake that, lake that feed it. And where the springs come up, they keep coming up all winter long. Where the springs come up, they're slightly warmer than the surrounding water, and so they melt little holes. Not very big usually, and sometimes they're completely iced over. But you can tell them because they're a little darker, and there are radiating cracks. It looks like a big octopus, okay? And you can see that really easily uh, when there's no snow on the lake. The snow gets on the lake on top of all of that. It's a little hard to see. But when we taught our kids to ice skate on Newman Lake, we said, this whole lake is open to you. You can skate anywhere you want. You can skate all day. You can have as much fun as you could possibly imagine skating on this lake unless you fall in one of these springs. If you fall in one of the springs, it's going to mess up your whole day. So I'm going to tell you where the springs are and the positive result of obeying this principle of don't skate on thin ice is that you can enjoy the whole lake. N apodictic law works that way. It's a prohibition of this particular thing. And by definition, everything else is cool. 
in the Christian life, essentially, everything is cool, except for a couple of things. Okay, so we're introduced to all of that. There's that pyramid. And that particular pyramid is missing its top piece. But it's not missing its camel drivers. Uh, those guys are something else. So the law is a reflection of the character of God. Uh, uh, and we talked about apodictic law. I want to end up on this. As we work through what's actually going on in that first commandment, the law is a reflection of God. And not just to sit in a vacuum, so that his people might reflect him. Okay? Do it all for the glory of God. If God lives in you, he should be visible in what? In your words, your actions, your attitudes, your relationships. His people might reflect him in faithful lives. As we exercise faith for a moment, multiply it by time. A whole lifetime with ups and downs and challenges and problems and good days and bad days. And in the process, transform the world. We as Christians are a revolutionary people. Our intention is a fundamental transformation of the world. Sometimes I ask myself, how are we doing? And then I ask myself, why no better than that? And I come back to first principles and I ask myself, Am I having trouble putting God first in my life? You shall have no other gods before me. Is he, in fact, there? Well, let's pray together. I'm going to let you go. I've already gone long. Uh, uh, if uh, Pastor Stephen finds out I went long and uh, you approve of that, uh, then he'll just preach longer. So don't tell him anything. <laughs> Father, it's good to be together. We thank you for the, uh, the privilege we have of worship. We thank you for our time around the word. We thank you for uh, the time that we have uh, to study. Uh, please help us uh, in our unbelief. Help us to trust you more and to glorify you more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. I want to thank Dr.